Let me ask you to open up with me to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus and chapter 6. As you're turning to Exodus chapter 6, let me remind you uh, where we are. We have God's people Israel still enslaved in Egypt. Uh, 80-year-old Moses has gone before Pharaoh and demanded that he let God's people go to the wilderness to worship. And the response of Pharaoh was that he absolutely refused. And he insulted Moses, and he insulted the God of Moses. He even made the work of the Israelites more severe and more burdensome. And so now the suffering of the people has increased. They are no longer listening to Moses as their leader. And Moses himself is greatly discouraged. God has spoken to Moses and given him several reasons why he ought not to be discouraged despite the way the circumstances look. But Moses is not a man of strong faith at this moment he is still focused on his own inadequacy he doesn't see how with with his faltering lips he can ever be used by God to deliver this people Israel from their bondage and so we come now to the end of chapter 6 the beginning of chapter 7 still in this moment of despondency and discouragement I want to begin in chapter 6, verse 28. We'll pick up the account there, and we're going to read through verse 7 of chapter 7. This is the very Word of God. Exodus 6, verse 28. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am Yahweh, Jehovah, The Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. 
So just like we've seen before, God is pointing to his identity as a reason for Moses to take heart. Moses, in your discouragement, I am the Lord. Moses, see who I am who is giving you these instructions. Remember my power, remember my might, and go do as I say. If I am for you, who can be against you? What can Pharaoh do to you if I, the Lord, am on your side? But all Moses can see are his uncircumcised lips. That's what he calls them. His uncircumcised lips. He feels unprepared. He feels unequipped. He feels unable to do the job. And so how does God respond? He tells Moses again exactly how everything is going to play out. This is the God who says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will declare all my purpose. This is the God who says to Moses, let me tell you what's going to happen before it happens. And in this way, Moses is finding confidence to obey God. What do we read in verse 6? Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded them. So finally, in verse 6, we find Moses ready to obey God. Ready to make his stand before Pharaoh for a second time. Now, there is something about knowing the end from the beginning that helps Christians be confident and bold for Christ. Uh, One of the most moving stories that I've ever heard is the account of the two Margarets. Margaret McLaughlin and Margaret Wilson. If you ever happen to travel to Scotland, they have a very beautiful part of the country that's right on the border of Scotland and England called the Solway Firth. And it was here that these two Margarets were killed on May 11th, 1685. These were known as the killing times in Scotland. For years, Scotland had seen a wonderful movement of God in that country. The country had become Presbyterian, but the king was demanding a change. He wanted everyone to become a part of the state church, the Church of Scotland, which was not a biblical church. And when people all over the country refused to be part of the state church and continue to seek to worship God as He commands, they did so at the risk of their lives. Many people died under the authority of the king. Margaret Wilson had spent much of her life hiding from the authorities, but an informant turned her family into the authorities. She was 18 years old. Her sister Agnes was 13 years old, and they were arrested and put into prison. There was also a 60-year-old woman, Margaret McLaughlin, 
who was arrested and imprisoned with them. And the father of Margaret and Agnes Wilson did everything he could to get his daughters released from prison. And he was able to get his 13-year-old, Agnes, released. But he was unable to save the life of his 18-year-old, Margaret. And so, Margaret McLaughlin, age 60, Margaret Wilson, age 18, were sentenced to die by drowning for refusing to join the state church. Two stakes were set up in Solway Firth, right where a river comes into the Wigtown Bay. They set up the stakes so that the two women could be fastened to the stakes at low tide, and then as the tide slowly came in, they would drown. They set the older Margaret's stake in deeper water so that the older Margaret would drown first. And the plan was that what they were hoping was that the younger Margaret would see the older Margaret die and then recant before she too was drowned in the same way. And so as the tide came in, the younger Margaret watched as the water rose and the older Margaret began to drown. And the soldiers asked the younger Margaret, Margaret Wilson, what do you think of her now? But seeing this woman dying on a wooden stake for her faith, Margaret said, I see Christ wrestling there. And then as the water was about to drown the younger Margaret, a soldier lifted up her head from the water and asked her to pray for the king. He was seeking for her to acknowledge that the king of Scotland was the true head of the church. But instead of doing what he wanted, Margaret said, God save him if he will. For it is the king's salvation that I desire. And with the soldier still holding her head, she refused to take the oath. She said, I will not. I am one of Christ's children. Let me go. And he pushed her head back into the water. We're told that before she died, her last words were the words of singing. She was singing Psalm 25. My sins and faults of youth do thou, O Lord, forget. After thy mercy think on me and for thy goodness great. God, good and upright is he. The way he'll sinners show, the meek in judgment he will guide and make his path to know. And if you visit the Solway Firth today, you can still sit on the shore and you can still look at the stakes which are still there where the tide still comes in upon them to this day. Mount Hermon, we stand on the shoulders of millions who have given their lives for the name of Christ. What gives someone the strength to stand up and be bold when their life is on the line? What gave these ladies and so many like them will and resolve to stay firm in the midst of such terrible oppression? What made the difference for Moses as he is now getting ready to put his neck on the line by daring to come again into the court of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the ancient world? What's going to give him the confidence? It was knowing the end from the beginning. God told him the end of the story. Moses, don't fear. 
Here's what's going to happen. Walk in this knowledge. These two Margarets had a faith in the Bible that declares that one day all things will be set right. In Revelation, we have the martyrs coming to God and asking how long till their blood will be avenged and justice will be done. Martyrs like these ladies believed what Revelation says about the future, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, that there will be a day of judgment, a day when good and righteousness and justice will prevail. And it's knowing that end. It's believing what God tells us ahead of time about how things are going to play out that gives us the courage to be Christians in a day when it's becoming increasingly difficult to be a Christian. I want to suggest something to us this morning. I want to suggest to us that in this passage, God is not only revealing to us what's about to happen in Egypt. God is giving us a glimpse of the end of the world. Mount Hermon, surely you have seen by now that what we are reading about in Exodus is a picture. It's a microscopic picture of what's going to happen on a global scale at the end of all things. Egypt and the story of the Exodus is a microcosm of what's going to happen in a macro scale at the end of all things. It, It is no accident that when we come to the book of Revelation, we start reading about plagues that God is going to bring upon this world. We read about trumpets in Revelation 8 and Revelation 9. And each time a trumpet is blown, we have a plague that comes that corresponds to these plagues that we read in the book of Exodus. We read in Revelation 11 of two witnesses that arrive during this time who were given power to turn water into blood and given power to bring plagues upon the earth. Does that sound familiar? Reminiscent of Moses and Aaron arriving with such power. There is a direct parallel between what we read here in the book of Exodus and what we find in the book of Revelation concerning ourselves. Don't miss this. The book of Exodus is not given to you as an interesting history lesson. The book of Exodus is given to you as a picture of the story that's being played out on a grander scale in our day. A story that you are a part of. And so here is my intention for the rest of our time this morning from this passage. Just as God told Moses the end from the beginning and he found confidence, I want you to see that in these verses we also have the end of the world. I want you to see what is happening and what is soon to happen in our day. Knowing the end, may we have confidence to be faithful in all of our God-given callings as we await Christ's final day. So here we go. First, I want you to note the great enemy in this passage who holds God's people in his grip. Note the great enemy in this passage who is holding sway over God's people, keeping them in bondage, oppressing them and causing them to suffer. He is Pharaoh. 
But he's not just another man. Pharaoh is under the influence of Satan. We've seen this already. He wears the symbol of a serpent on the very center of his crown. We will see later that he has magicians who perform works of dark and demonic magic. Pharaoh is an example, a picture, a symbol. Yes, a real historical man. But in the history, a symbol of government power under Satan's influence being used to persecute the people of God. And this is a theme that we find all over the Bible and especially in the book of Revelation and in the warnings of Jesus about what we should expect to see in these last days. Remember, the last days are not still a day ahead. The last days are the days that we've been in ever since Jesus Christ went up into heaven. The Bible pictures the last days as the day stretching from Jesus' first ascension into heaven and to Christ's return. And so we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. Revelation teaches that these last days will be marked by governmental powers under Satan's influence persecuting the people of God. We see it in ancient Egypt in the book of Exodus. We see it again and again in the Bible under the theme of Babylon. In the first centuries of the church, it was Roman power that was feeding Christians to the lions. In later centuries, it was the Holy Roman Empire and state churches. These governmental powers that claimed the name of Christ and in the name of Christ persecuted and killed those who actually believed the gospel. It was Satan's great mockery of Christ to set up governmental powers in Jesus' name who then used their power to kill the true followers of Jesus. As the end times have continued to unfold, as these last days have continued to, to play out, we have seen again and again this phenomenon of governmental powers persecuting and oppressing the people of God, and it is only worsened. More Christians were killed by governmental power in the 20th century than in all the other centuries combined. They were killed under atheistic communism, Soviet Union, China, North Korea. They were killed under Muslim authorities, increasingly in the latter half of the 20th century and now into our day. And they were killed under militant Hindu authorities. Think Indonesia and India and Burma, now called Myanmar. It's really hard to get numbers from nations like North Korea. But most scholars tell us that if we knew the number of Christians who have been killed by North Korea in the last hundred years, we would be staggered. One very well documented website that seeks to keep up with this says that North Korean Christians are not simply being killed for their faith. North Korean Christians have been pulverized with steamrollers. They have been used to test biological weapons. They have been shipped off to death camps and Christian parents have been shot in front of their children. Newborn babies have had their brains pithed with forceps in front of their believing mothers. Crimes against humanity 
reminiscent of Auschwitz and Treblinka to which the world declared never again more than 60 years ago are being perpetrated today against the Christians of North Korea, end quote. Jesus told his disciples, he said, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you up to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. He said, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. What happens to sheep in the midst of wolves? Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will drag before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Notice that even in the warnings of Jesus, it's often governmental persecution that he has in mind. And so just as God's people are in bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt... God's people today are often in bondage to worldly powers that are stronger than us and persecute us and oppress us. And I think we get the sense from the Bible that this kind of governmental oppression will only increase until the moment that Christ comes in judgment. Now, how does God defeat Pharaoh? How does God respond to this governmental demonic oppression and persecution of his people? First, he sends someone to Egypt to declare his truth. He sends a deliverer for his people. He sends someone who declares judgment on Pharaoh and all of Egypt. He sends a prophet. He sends Moses. And notice what God says to Moses in verse 1. Verse 1, see... I have made you like God to Pharaoh. So here is Moses feeling weak and unequipped, faltering lips. I don't think I can do this again. And God says, I have made you like me to Pharaoh. It wasn't, of course, that Moses was somehow being made divine. But because the truth and the true God was with Moses and for Moses... Moses would now be more powerful than Pharaoh. God is telling Moses, do not be afraid of Pharaoh. Do not be intimidated by him. Pharaoh is the most important and powerful man on planet earth, except not anymore. Because Moses, you are my man. And I am bringing you to bring this word of judgment to Pharaoh. And as long as I am with you, you are now the most powerful man on planet earth. Do not be afraid. In the next several chapters, we're going to see Moses come again and again and again into the presence of Pharaoh with boldness and with courage, and he will pronounce with the voice of a prophet the judgment of God upon the land of Egypt. And we're going to see the plagues that are brought against the land all leading to that climactic moment of judgment at the Red Sea. How is Moses going to speak the word of God to Pharaoh? Through his brother, (laughs) Through a prophet, Aaron. Aaron will be Moses' voice. Moses is is commanded to only speak what God tells him to speak. And Aaron is to be the voice of Moses, speaking what Moses relates to him. So God's method of delivering his people from this oppression and bringing them into a promised land, as well as bringing judgment on Egypt, 
is that he sends a deliverer who will be more powerful than the most powerful man on earth and who will speak through a prophet named Aaron. And what is God's method of delivering his people from their suffering in this world today? What is his method of bringing us into the promised land where there will be no more oppression, persecution, sorrow, sickness, pain, or death? And what is his method of bringing judgment on this world that is so oppressive towards his people? Well, he again is sending a deliverer. He again is going to send one who isn't just like God. (laughs) Moses, I've made you like me. No, this time, God came himself as the deliverer. Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world, and just as Moses was to speak only what God told him to speak, so Jesus came and said, I speak only what my Father tells me. John 12, 49, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. Jesus came as the great deliverer, John 14, 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And just as Moses spoke the words of God through Aaron, so Jesus continues to speak right now through the person of the Holy Spirit. John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. God speaks to Moses. Moses gives the word to Aaron, and Aaron speaks. God now, Christ exalted. God speaks to Christ. Christ gives the word to the spirit, and the spirit is bringing the word, delivering people around this world today. It's a message of deliverance for those who will believe on Christ. It's a message of encouragement to God's people who are struggling under persecution. And it's a message of judgment to those who will continue to reject God and reject His people. Notice that Moses' ministry was to be a Jeremiah ministry. Do you know what I mean when I say a Jeremiah ministry? A Jeremiah ministry is a term that pastors often use. It's a ministry in which God has called a pastor to preach God's truth. And as you preach, God uses his word to harden people rather than to save them. Pastors don't like talking about a Jeremiah ministry. We don't want a Jeremiah ministry. right? We want a, a Jonah ministry. right? Jonah goes to Nineveh and the whole city repents. That's what a preacher wants. But in the sovereignty of God, sometimes he calls pastors to a Jeremiah ministry where God says, you're going to go to a church and you're going to preach my word and rather than soften their hearts and save them, I'm going to harden their hearts by my word. When God called Jeremiah, he told Jeremiah up front. He told Jeremiah at the very beginning, Jeremiah, the people are going to reject you. The officials, the priests, and the people of the land are going to fight against you. They're not going to believe the message that I'm sending you to preach. Now, go preach it. I've had some dear friends who had ministries like this. Pastors that came into churches that were 
Maybe churches on the outside, but most of the congregation was unregenerate and unbelieving. Most of the people were unconverted. Churches where even the, the deacons and the leadership were, were unconverted. The church was more like a social club than a true church. And, and as the pastor would preach the gospel week after week, the people would respond not with faith, but with hardened hearts, with angry hearts. The pastor could say, it's right here in the word of God. And the people would say, we see it, but so what? We don't like it and we don't want it. Sometimes God chooses to bless his word so that many are convicted and humbled and saved. And sometimes God chooses to use his word not to humble hearts, but to harden them. It could just as easily be called an Isaiah ministry, by the way. You remember the amazing story of Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah died, seized the Lord. And we remember the great vision of the, the, the seraphim, the six wings, and holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And God saying, who will go for me? And Isaiah saying, here I am, send me. We often forget what comes next. Isaiah, here I am, send me. God says, make the heart of the people dull. Make their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God said the same thing to Isaiah. Isaiah, you volunteered. Here's what you signed up for. No one's going to believe you. I'm going to use your word to harden hearts and bring judgment. What does God tell Moses in this passage? Look at verse 2. Verse 2. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. That's the message. Here's the response, verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Can you handle a God that says that? Does your thinking about God have room for a statement like that? I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Moses' ministry was a ministry of judgment. It was a Jeremiah ministry. But at least he's being told from the beginning that his message will be rejected. And he's being told that through that rejection, God is going to display the glory of his righteousness as he brings justice onto the land of Egypt. God himself is going to harden Pharaoh's heart for the purposes of his glory and ultimately the salvation of many, many people who live a long ways away from Egypt. Friends, in the same way, Jesus is speaking to this world right now. The Holy Spirit is raising up believers who open their mouths, whether it's preachers in pulpits or you at your workplace or over lunch at Hardee's with an unbelieving friend. The Spirit is working through His people to speak the gospel. And as the gospel goes forth, the Spirit does a double work. Sometimes He softens and saves. Sometimes He hardens. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. 
the majority of people who hear the gospel will not believe it. That's just the truth that Jesus tells us. The majority of people who hear the gospel will reject it. Until the end of the age, people will be hardened again and again against the word of Christ and only a blessed remnant chosen of God will receive it. Is that not humbling? Now, note the many judgments that are going to come upon Egypt before God delivers his people. Look again, verses 3 and 4. Notice that God says, Though I multiply my signs and wonders. The end of verse 4, he talks about great acts of judgment. So what are these plagues that we're about to study for three months? What are these plagues that we're going to be learning about, right? Frogs and lice and water turned to blood and hailstones coming from the air. And What are these plagues? They are plagues of judgment. And they are plagues of warning. They are plagues meant to wake up the people of Egypt and especially Pharaoh and say, if you do not repent, if you do not do right, there is a greater judgment to come. Each plague getting success successively more severe, more severe, more severe. So we've already mentioned the book of Revelation hearkens to these plagues when it speaks about the age that we live in right now. Today we see famine, we see drought, we see war, we see natural disasters. These are all judgments of God, warning of a greater judgment to come. These things are meant to wake us up. Every plague, every hurricane, every tornado, every war, every moment of disaster, it is a call to repentance. And it is a call to the nations to stop thinking so haughtily about themselves and to remember that there is a sovereign God who is in control. Everything America has accomplished can be wiped away by one huge storm if God chooses. And therefore, let us be careful that we do not trounce His name in the dust nor persecute the people that He loves, those He calls His children. And I'm not talking about national Israel. I'm talking about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Egypt, plague after plague comes and Pharaoh will not let God's people go. Even after the worst, the tenth, the death of Pharaoh's own firstborn son, We will find Pharaoh change his mind and chase the people of Israel down in order to destroy them. And at the Red Sea, we will see a picture of final judgment as God's people come through the sea in safety. But those who would oppress them find themselves drowned. And in Revelation... The image comes back again. Revelation 18, 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a giant millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and they will be found no more. 
government powers persecuting the people of God, the North Koreas, the Irans, the Indonesias, the, the, the government powers of this world are all going to be drowned in the sea, Revelation says. But God's people will be safe. Mount Hermon, do we realize what's happening around us in our own day? Storms, famine, war, these are warnings of a greater judgment to come and soon these smaller judgments will give way to the great judgment. And on that day, God's suffering people all over this world will be delivered and those who were the oppressors will find themselves condemned. Do you want to know the end from the beginning? Do you want to know how it's going to play out. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God says to Pharaoh, you think you're God. You think you're almighty. Let me show you who's God. And on the last day, Jesus Christ will come and all the nations will find themselves humiliated, bowing before King Jesus, saying, we thought we knew what power was. We never had power at all. All power belongs to you. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered together to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. These aren't the verses we put in our quilts and hang on our walls. These aren't the verses we write in our cards of sympathy, and, but they're true. What Moses heard God saying in Exodus 6, in the beginning of chapter 7, it was bad news. It was Moses, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you, and terrible things are going to happen, but it's going to be for my glory, and ultimately, it's going to bring about a whole lot of good. 
And what God tells us right now tonight is, tonight, this morning is, there's some tough things that are going to come. There is a great judgment ahead. And it's going to be tough. Indeed, for those who do not know the Lord, it's going to be terrible. But great good is going to come. 2 Peter 3 says that on this great day of judgment, the very heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. I simply ask you, dear friends, are you ready for that day? We're already in the midst of the plagues. The greater judgment is coming, and it will be so much worse than what we see at the Red Sea. Let me close by asking you to note verse 6. Verse 6. Verse 6 says that after this, his people will have been delivered and the great judgments will have come and then the Egyptians will know that he is the Lord. On that day when all this is played out, then all of Egypt will know that Yahweh is the true God. And this is exactly what God has promised for our future. That after these days of plagues are over, after that great day of judgment has come, then everyone will know that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. On the last day, there will be no more atheists. On the last day, there will be no more agnostics. On the last day, there will be no more Muslims, no more Hindus, no more Buddhists. On the last day, everyone will know the truth and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But of course, if we wait till that day to confess, it will be too late. Today is the day to be counted among God's people. You say, how can I be saved from God's judgment? How can I be counted among God's delivered people? Dear friends, in Exodus, we're going to see Israel delivered from the wrath of God by the blood of a lamb. And in the same way, we are told that we are saved when we take to ourselves the blood of a lamb. Jesus Christ has died for sinners. He paid the sin debt for His people. Trust in Christ. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior. Follow Him. Be baptized in His name. Seek to learn from Him what it means to be His disciple. And then when our Red Sea day comes and the floods of the judgment of God come upon this earth, you will find yourself on the other side in safety, ready to go into the promised land where you will know what true joy and true life really is. Mount Hermon, we know the end from the beginning. We know that good wins. We know that righteousness prevails. God prevails. And so let us trust Him. And with this knowledge, let us find the confidence to go out into this week and fulfill our every calling with integrity and with faithfulness and with boldness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God who declares the end from the beginning. We thank you for how your words to Moses gave him the confidence he needed. He was a transformed man 
because you spoke to him the end of the story. Now, Father, would you make us transformed people because we know the end of the story? Would you give us courage and confidence and boldness? And Father, should there be someone in this room that doesn't know how they will fare on the day of judgment, would you work in their heart to humble them, to bring them to Christ, that they may know what true love and true life really is? Father, we thank you for your word. May it bear fruit in us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.